how to cultivate a heart for God. And uh, let me take you through um, just some, just kind of frame this. It's, some of this is are things that we've said in different ways before here at the beginning. And we kind of want to frame this idea of desire for God. It, 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 you all know that we're in a series, and it's the third in a series this summer, on how to cultivate a heart for God. And specifically what we're doing is we're talking about specific affections of the heart that the Bible says that we ought to have. God expects us to have a heart that includes these things, but he also works within us to give us a heart that includes these things. And so we talked about godly fear. Does anybody remember what we talked about last week? Now, don't disappoint me now. Last week was biblical when I tell you, you're going to all just groan and you'll remember and all of it will come rushing back right then. That's right. Thank you very much. Hope. Biblical hope. So, so far we've covered godly fear, biblical hope, and tonight, desire. In particular, a desire for God. So, desire in the soul. Talk about this just a little bit. There are deep desires in every soul. There is a God-implanted hunger or desire in every soul. We're designed by God to have these desires or delights. Let me give you a couple of quotes, and these are out of Christian writing. But we're going to go from this Christian writing, which is kind of like interesting reading, to the Word of God, which is absolute. So, but this will kind of um, amplify this. Uh, these happen to be from a writer who is interesting. I wouldn't want to recommend completely. Be careful when, and just, I'll just say, your Wednesday night people, you can hear this. Be careful with C.S. Lewis. Interesting, good writing. Um, and, and we thank the Lord that he understood that he was wrong as an agnostic and he wrote some Christian apologetics, but we want to be kind of careful. So every time I quote C.S. Lewis, and I, I always almost feel like putting a little asterisk there and say, be careful. However, these things, from three different books, uh, he had a way of expressing this, and these things I believe to be true. Um, it, it, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. You probably know that during the war... He, he had a series of radio broadcasts that eventually made into a book called Mere Christianity. And maybe many of you have read that book. I read that in high school. There's another little essay, or it's a sermon. It's a very powerful uh, sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in these three different writings, he addresses this one idea, this idea that, that he, the way he expresses it, that human beings have this inexplicable, mysterious, enigmatic desire. It's like you have a longing for something, and you're really not sure what it is, but it's a God-given thing, and it's in everybody's heart. Every heart that beats has this desire in it. Let me give you these three quotes. From the problem of pain, he said, There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering in our heart of hearts if we've ever desired anything else. It's the secret signature of each soul, he says. It's the incommunicable and unappeasable want the thing we desired before we meet our wives or made our friends or chose our work, in which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind is no longer when the mind is no longer with us and we no longer know our wife or our friend or our work and all of your life in unattainable ecstasy has hovered just behind the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming though when you will awake to find beyond all hope that you have finally attained it. This, he says to the Christian. What's he saying? He's saying that there is this kind of mysterious desire or longing in all of us, and we go through life kind of trying to meet that desire, that longing. For those who know the Lord will realize when we, are, we see the Lord that that desire is in, is in state of fulfillment. 
in, in mere Christianity, he wrote, if we find, and this is kind of a popular quote, I think it's worthwhile, if we find ourselves with a desire nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly desires satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for earthly blessings. On the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or image or echo. And then he says, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. So I think he's kind of on to that. You see what he's saying? He's just expressing something that we, we probably all agree is true, that there is within all of us this unexplainable, deep, profound desire. And he's talking about heaven. We, we're going to be more specific than heaven. In the weight of glory, he wrote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. These are well-known quotes you may have heard before. But to cluster them together is just an illustration that there is there are deep desires in every soul. And I think most of us would agree, Pastor, I know that's true because that's true about me. Now, the second thing I want to show you here about desire in the soul is that God is the satisfaction of those desires. Specifically, what I want to say here is, in the Psalms, you can see that God is meant to be the satisfaction of our deepest desires and our deepest longings. We probably see that best in the Psalms. I want to show you that tonight in a few passages. And you might want to write these down or turn to them if you're lightning fast. Lightning fast. Here we go. Psalm 27, 4. Psalm 27, 4. Jot this down. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. One thing have I desired. Here is the psalmist expressing a desire to be with the Lord, and to see the Lord, and to be around the Lord. That this desire this ultimately met, not just in heaven, but in, in the Lord, in God, in Christ. Psalm 42 is another example. Catch the um, tenor of this. Catch the, uh, the passion in the, in the voice. This is not really the way we often commonly talk about our religion. But in the Psalms they did. Compare your own desire, the heat of your desire, the, the temperature of your spiritual desire. Compare it with what you hear here. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It's, a, it's another way of saying the same thing he said in Psalm 27. Do you get that, though? Look at the desire that's expressed there in the Psalms and that the root of that desire is, is God. Psalm 63. You probably knew I would go there next. Psalm 63 in verse 1. Um, when, when David was in the wilderness of Judah, he, sa- he sang, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry, thirsty land where there is no water. 
If psalms are lyric poems, they were written for lyres, which were kind of like more like guitars than harps. Um, even though we often put harps in the hand of you know people, imagine a young man with his stringed instrument of the time composing a song where he's singing something so intimate about his feelings and his affections for God over and over again. And, and here's another example. And what am I what I'm illustrating with these passages again is that God. The Psalms clearly indicate that God is to be the satisfaction of those deep inner longings that we have, that we all have, that God is to satisfy them. Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth I desire besides you. Now, some of you might think, where does that put the other things like taking your daughter on a Ferris wheel under the full moon on a cool summer night? What's that? What's that? Oh, where does it put the smell that you, you, you smell when you drive past Outback Steakhouse? What's that? Is that just a purely pagan, wicked desire? What is that? Well, it kind of depends. If you make a god out of Outback Steakhouse, if you make a god out of your family, if you make a god out of a tree, then you're into idolatry and your desires are off-kilter. If, however, you recognize these things that God has given that are legitimate as expressions of His love, and you enjoy them as acts of worship, then you're not worshiping your daughter and the Ferris wheel or the steak at Outback Steakhouse, but you're worshiping God, but you're being stimulated by His good gifts to worship Him. Well, you knew this, but it's fun to say it again, isn't it? This is how it's supposed to work. Now, the thing I've noticed is that satisfied people, though, are rare. How rare is it? You know, you ever been uh, to a a place that's supposed to be like a world-class entertainment place? You you know, it might be like an amusement park that people spend lots of money to go have a great time. Or a football game or a baseball game or, or a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, national park and, and try to find a person there who looks happy. It's so surprising how few people look happy in places where they have spent a lot of money to be happy. Uh, we don't want to be too judgmental because sometimes if you look around the church on a Sunday morning, you know, you, you, you have to, well, we don't want to talk about that too much, do we? Uh, Shouldn't those people just look deliriously joyful? <laughs> In other words, satisfied people are rare. Even among professing Christians, our satisfaction with God is often thin or scarce or apparently absent. Is that too harsh to say? We had a Muslim young man visit us two Sundays. And, of course, we entered into some really interesting dialogue. He just happened to come in to our congregation when we are teaching through Matthew 7, which was... Uh, providential and and then we had some ongoing dialogue and and he had some questions he asked me something one morning real early in the morning real early in the morning as a matter of fact um he must have been working the late i i was gonna go somewhere so i i wanted to make sure i didn't miss my flight so i woke up at three o'clock in the morning like so i wouldn't miss my flight and I noticed this, and so we began to exchange text. And one of the things he did was he sent me 
Now, don't be upset with him here. I, I think this is a stimulating question. He sent me a question. Uh, he, he included a number of passages of Scripture where people, when they met God, fell on their face, got on their face. And he said, I visited your church. Why don't Christians ever get on their face? And one of our sisters said, well, we, we don't necessarily get on our face publicly, and we certainly ought to get on our face before the Lord privately and prostrate ourselves and worship him. And even though the young man, we, we know his beliefs are off and the practice of Muslims is to get on their face, but they pray not to the God of the Bible. Uh, well, what, like, what evidence would there be if somebody followed you around that your religion got to your heart, that your religion drove you to your knees, that your relationship with the Lord put you on your face? Could we say to our young friend, who's investigating Christianity, oh no, Christian people are affected by their faith. They are affected by their faith. They feel deep feelings of, of devotion, of desire, of joy. And he, and he wouldn't say this, I don't think, because he's a very polite young man, but c- couldn't he say, I, I was watching for that, but I don't, you know, how much of that would he see? So, this is something I think it's good for us to ask. Can I say that without you thinking I'm being hard on you or unkind? I'm thinking about myself. Someone has written this. Today, worship service, Bible studies, prayer meetings, and fellowship gatherings in many churches do not have a spirit of earnestness and intensity and fervor and depth. And that's true. You know, you ever notice that sometimes we, say th- we sing things that are just amazing things to sing, but we act like we're just barely awake while we're singing these amazing things. And we shouldn't, like, try to trump up some kind of false, affected kind of emotion. But is it not true that we should ask ourselves, have we slipped into the kind of um, uh, heartless, passionless, convictionless routines that are religious, we should stay away from that, right? 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 says it's a fight. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of witnesses. He describes this kind of um, pursuit of God as a fight. It's described other where other places says work, labor. It's something we work on and fight for. And so there are deep desires in every soul. The Bible, particularly the Psalms, say that those desires are to be met in God. But a lot of times we look at our lives. Can I just say it this way so that you won't be hurt? Many mornings I get up in the morning and this desire that ought to be in my heart is not there. It's just not there. I feel a coldness. I'm thinking of something else. I'm checking my email. I'm not stirred with love for God or humbled by His love for me or thrilled that I'm, my heart's beating for another day or glad and grateful for my healthy family or, or, or absolutely shocked that a congregation will let me be their pastor, which I should be every day. We're just satisfied people are rare. Would you agree? And is it, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you even be willing to say, and I think maybe by your very presence here tonight, you are saying, 
I want my desires to be more sincere. And so satisfaction to God, however, doesn't come naturally. And this is one of the reasons why we wake up in the morning and we don't feel immediately affections for God. Could be a number of reasons. Could be that we're not born again. That would be the first thing we ought to inquire about. But Godward desire does not come naturally. This requires cultivation, cooperation, work, and even warfare. As we said, according to the language of Scripture, we have to work. We have to fight to delight in, in God and to have the right desires in our hearts. We have to work at it. It's a discipline as well as a miracle. First Peter 2 and verse 11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly desires which what? War against the soul. See that? In other words, if you have, you have God... As, as who, who is the legitimate focus of the desire of our soul. And then you have all these idols that crowd in, and, and we have a temptation to, to worship, to give our affection and our worship to things or desires that are... And this would be called by Peter, fleshly lust, fleshly desires. And what did he say about them? What are they doing to our soul? They are warring against our soul so it's a war our soul is at war for there's a war there for our the the allegiance of our soul our desires and it's in our desires um it's interesting that we are to war then we're also to work and paul said to the corinthians i'm working with you i'm working with you for you to have this joy or desire it's in second corinthians 1 and verse 24 now that we have dominion over your faith not that we have dominion over your faith but we are fellow workers for your joy for by faith you stand paul's describing this kind of battle for us having right desires as hey i'm working with you i'm working i'm laboring with you so in other words it doesn't come naturally because it's a spiritual matter it requires regeneration getting spiritual life through being saved and then it requires ongoing like cultivation like you're working at it and you're disciplining yourself and others are helping you and so you see there are deep desires in every soul god says he's those deep desires are there for him to satisfy often we're not satisfied people reason is it's not really natural for us to be so take supernatural help and desire for god though some things about this desire for god a couple more things desire for god is satisfying and it has a sanctifying effect. We've talked about this before. But when a person begins to uh, aim their soul at God, and when a person begins to seek their joy in God and find their delight in God, that's called worship. And what, what they find is they, that is satisfying. There's something deeply satisfying about that that nothing else could ever satisfy. And it has a sanctifying effect. We sin less when we worship more. And the opposite is true. Other desires don't satisfy, and other desires don't make us sin less, but they themselves, if we pursue those desires apart from Christ, those desires themselves, no matter how benign they seem, are sinful. They are sin. And so desire for God is a satisfying and sanctifying effect. Here's here's an interesting way of saying this. We would recognize God as the sovereign Lord over everything, do you agree with me about that? Yes, you do. Sovereign Lord over everything. We would recognize that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior for all who would come to it. We agree with that. We do. 
But there's a, there's, a, there's a deeper thing, a thing that reaches deeper or beyond there or should be seen as well. And that is that He is also not only our all-powerful sovereign Lord, not only our all-sufficient saving one, our Savior, but that He is an all-satisfying and all-surpassing treasure to us. So you've heard people say it this way, is Jesus your Savior? And we would want to answer quickly, yes, He's my Savior. And then we would say, is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus Christ the treasure of your heart? That kind of slows us down a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy to say, oh, yes, He is. So it is said, when we devote ourselves to resist the idolatrous power of every craving, every desire, every pleasure that is not God, then God is exalted as the superior treasure of our lives, fighting against all alien joy shows that we know the infinite worth of God. That's a good quote, isn't it? Someone who's written really well on this and, and, and is uh, John Piper. He's written a number of books. One of the books that he wrote, I don't know if any of you, how many of you read The Desiring God book? It's kind of like his magnum opus. You, you ought to read a good book or the little version, The Dangerous Duty of Delight, if you like the Cliff Notes version. But there's a book he wrote after that when he, when he wrote it, and I saw the title, I thought, oh, I've got to have a copy of that book. And here's the provocative title, When I Don't Desire God. Have you seen that book? How many of you read that one? Anybody? When I Don't Desire God. Very, very wonderful book. I have some quotes from that book in my message here tonight. Other desires don't lead to sin. Other desires outside of God don't satisfy. So when our desire for God is replaced by other desires, then when our desires are perverted into inordinate desires or lust, then inordinate lust, then we sin and we serve idols and they can't ever satisfy us. Now, this is kind of all review because I'm getting to, I'm trying to kind of give, this is, the, this is the potato skins with bacon sprinkles and sour cream. Appetizer. Yeah. This is the appetizer to make you desire to learn to desire God. Is it working? Anybody's mouth watering for Jesus here tonight? Good. Well, he's the one who does that. It's obviously possible to set aside our hunger and our desire for God and allow ourselves to be filled up with junk food, to desire other things. Think of it. Who wrote some of those psalms and had an obvious grasp of desire for God? Thank you. Thank you, faithful student back there. David. And David never had a moment when his appetite for God waned. Am I right? Oh, no, he did. He had, a, he had a moment when he had appetite for things that are just so sad. Like what? Why wasn't he satisfied with God in that moment? And those moments of the time of, of, of sin. And this is terribly autobiographical for us, isn't it? So here's a little slide that might kind of frame it again. What happens when you don't desire God? You, I'm sorry, when you do desire God, you have ultimate satisfaction. You sin less. It's a sanctifying effect. It has a satisfying effect. It's moving you in that direction. What happens when you don't have a desire for God? The opposite. You won't find satisfaction in your soul, and you will sin more. Kind of simplistic, but true. Now, the only true lasting satisfaction then is satisfaction in God. And the best way to defeat sin would be by the power of a superior pleasure or like the Thomas Chalmers said, the expulsive power of a new affection. Best way to overcome sin is to push it out with something that's better. It, uh, Dan Cummings is with the Lord. 
Dan was one of these kind of guys that was just, his messages were just so rich with the Bible. He didn't have a lot of time for stories. He just, he just kind of like, he was one of these kind of guys that just is constantly, uh, and, but he was, a, and I believe in stories, but this guy was an anointed guy. He did, however, tell a story. I remember it. it kind of, I, I always get a kick out of John MacArthur, who I admire so much, will often kind of take pot shots at people who tell stories, which I always take personally. And yet, um, I remember when he came to Moody Bible Institute in 1977, and I remember every story he told. <laughs> but I never told him that because I didn't want to get him upset. You know, remember the stories. Anyway, nonetheless, Dan Dan Cummings. This wonderful, he's, he, he died of cancer, pastor up here in, in uh, the uh, Rochester Hills or Lake Orion area. Anyway, he, um, here's what he said. He said he had a grandmother in Grand Haven. He said his grandmother would make the most wonderful meals. It just would mouth with water. They'd drive across the state and think about the big table and all the food that was going to be on that table. He said he could just imagine the cranberry sauce, the real cranberry sauce, and the turkey and the dressing and all the things that go with that, and the, the, the rich pumpkin pie, the whipped cream on it, the, the, the coffee. He said, can you imagine what it would have been like if uh, on the way over to Grandma's that we got over to Grand Haven and we're, we're, almost, we're almost there within a few minutes of uh, Grandma's house and we noticed that the, the light was on at Krispy Kreme. And we thought, what? You know, those things, you can eat them and, I mean, it's just like you didn't have anything. You, they just melt in your mouth. They're gone. Why don't we just stop and grab a box? Not a big deal. And so the family stops. They get a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. And how they always say, you get one box for, you know, three ninety-five, or two boxes for $4. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But you know how they always do that? You go, well, then I must have two boxes because I don't want to be a fool and waste my money. So now all of a sudden, instead of having... A donut, we're just eating a box of donuts. And uh, I'm laughing because I'm looking back at Chuck Jumanville, who's like, like, does not eat donuts, I'm sure. Am I right? Yes. Sorry about that. You come to church, you, you never know what's going to happen to you. Now, what happens when you get to grandmother's? You don't have an appetite anymore. Why? Because you ate something so much better than what she had, Right? No, because you were foolish and you had donuts when you could have had grandma's feast. Well, it's an inadequate illustration, but it is helpful, isn't it? And that is the best way to defeat sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. How can I possibly overcome Krispy Kreme with a light on? (laughs) I have to think about the big table. I have to smell the turkey. I have to imagine the dressing. I have to imagine the coffee and the pie. And when I do that, that superior pleasure, I can turn away from that temptation. And this is what... We're saying. And so Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. According to Hebrews 1 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the uh, picture of God and the image of God and the exact imprint of God. We see Jesus, we see God. He said that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to see him and to look on Jesus and is to have our is to be looking at the one who alone can satisfy our soul. So how do we do that? That's what we're going to talk about here. So to be satisfied by the beauty of God doesn't come naturally to sinful people. By nature we get more pleasure from God's gifts than we get from him by nature. Therefore, what we want to do here is call for a deep radical change. So how do we cultivate this desire 
How can we taste and see that the Lord is good? So let me give you these. Here's some just practical ideas. And uh, I want to say before I go on, I don't want to give you the impression that this can be reduced to a formula. We're talking here about an ongoing lifelong relationship with the Holy God, with an infinite Holy God. So you can't just say, here are five, six, there are actually six little things here. You can't just say, these are six things, you do these, and you'll have this amazing relationship with God. No, it's just a lifetime continual feast, right? But these are things that you see often in the lives of people who are deeply satisfied in God. No one is ever satisfied in God who isn't saved. You don't even desire God until God implants that in you and stirs that up within you. You're blind. And the God of this world is blinded the eyes of people who don't know God. And that's what the passage there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. You're familiar with this. It's it's worthwhile for us to stop here tonight and to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is you if you don't know the Lord. This is why somebody said, that was a Bill Gothard or somebody told me one time. Who was it? It was Elizabeth Elliot. said, if you read the Bible and you don't understand it, it might be because you don't know the Lord. You're reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> when you come to know the Lord, then the Bible's going to start to make sense to you because it's yours and the Spirit of God enlightens you. And that's what it says here. We don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Um, we know that verse 4 says the, the, the minds, their minds, the ones who are perishing, their minds the God of this age is blinded, and they don't believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine in them. They would get an, an idea of the beauty of Christ. We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Park on that if you forget everything I said tonight. Just park on that verse. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You get to know Jesus Christ. You study Jesus Christ. You fall in love with Jesus Christ. You sing about Him. You see His qualities and virtues. The, the deepest part of you begins to deeply admire Him. Now you're worshiping and you're becoming more like Him and you're being more satisfied in Him. That's, what it's, that's how it's supposed to work. And so, but that can't happen to a person that's unconverted because they're still blind. So you have to be saved first. If you're, you're here tonight and you're not certain that you're saved, you can be saved. The, law, the Spirit of God stirs up a desire in you to be saved. You can be saved tonight. Jesus, has, Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay for sinners, for sin. And, and, and he's seeking worshipers. And you can be saved tonight. Some of you are, you've debated this too long and you just should yield yourself to the Lord and be saved before it's too late. And then you can begin this life of satisfaction, desire, worship, faithfulness to the Lord that you owe your life to Him. And, you're, and so uh, if you need counsel on that, let's talk tonight. You need to be saved. So, so now uh, these are the six things that I've written. And, and again, this is just one way of expressing this. There's a lot of ways. One is be saved. Second here, create an atmosphere, and these are just like pastoral ideas. Create an atmosphere where you can concentrate on God. Create an atmosphere where you can concentrate on God. Understand, before you knew God, the Bible describes people that before they know God as their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and their mind is set on earthly things. But now you, if you're saved then your, your, your God isn't your belly. Your God is God. and Your mind isn't set on earthly things, but it's set on heavenly things. And so create an atmosphere where you can concentrate on God. Here's some suggestions. 
I personally strongly suggest that you, this isn't the main thing, but this is a very significant thing, that you use creation, God's creation, nature. Even simple things, this tiny little backyard that we have. And I'm out on my little Sabbath on Monday, and I'm sitting in a chair trying not to work, and trying not to think about work, and trying just to be, and trying to be quiet. And a squirrel comes walking up and comes over to me, kind of looks at me like, hey, what are you doing here? This is my backyard. And, uh, and, and then I notice um, the bird songs, and then I see the birds kind of hop, along on the on the back porch and then i hear the uh betty you've been in that little backyard haven't you i see a smile now. hear the little trickling fountain that mrs gray put there and and uh it is a help to be in the simplest kinds of expression of nature and creation is a stimulant to god we don't worship nature or we don't worship creation but it is a stimulant to worship would you agree and so i would suggest using that the, it was, it's clear in the bible that men and women of god did this and I would suggest that you don't, you don't have to go a long way away. You can, tonight, I think it's a full moon. It's a cool night. Don't you love being Michigan people in a, at a time like this? This is the time of year you want to call your friends in Arizona and go, too bad you're not here. It's so beautiful. It's cool. It's very beautiful. Full moon. Yeah. And uh, we're Michigan people. Take a walk. Look at the full moon. Uh, drink that in. And I've noticed in my heart that often when a, a cold heart can be kind of stimulated to life, when I just quiet and look at the squirrels or listen to the birds or look at the moon or smell the flowers or take a drive and hear the new mo- or smell the new mown hay or just stop and listen to my little girl's voice or I look at my wife's pictures and when that happens, oh, now you're, now you're starting to have your heart melt and warm toward the things of God. He's so good that he put those things in our life to do that for us. If this doesn't work for you, try to get um, Hazel Woodruff to make you banana nut bread. If you can resist that, your heart is cold as a stone. Had some of that this week. It's like, wow, that was good. Anyway, you may use, please don't be jealous. It's a sin you'll have to confess later. Use, you may use tradition. You know, sometimes we like new things. Sometimes people's hearts are helped by tradition. And this is the place where an old hymn is very, very helpful sometimes. Or just, this is the way I've done it. And there, there are reasons that we do that. We don't want to eschew or, or we don't want to curse everything about tradition. There are, there are things that we've done for years and years, even like assembling on a Wednesday night, that warm our hearts because they're what we've done for a long time. And I, I can tell you that, that that's one of the ways to stimulate your heart for God is do something old that you're used to doing and an old Bible or an old tradition. Or, and it's, that's common. Uh, that's why some people find help in, in certain kinds of well-written liturgies or prayers and so forth. You may use some art. Uh, you may use music. Certainly you do, and the Scriptures commend that a lot. And, and I, you know, I, with me, I don't know if this is helpful to you, but I, uh, sometimes a song goes through my mind, and I open up my computer, and I go on YouTube, and I listen to that song, and then I click on another song, and then I click on another song, and then I'm, I'm worshiping and sometimes making a fool of myself. And, but but the, are you this way? That sometimes when your heart is cold and you... You know, certain songs will help you in your, in to stimulate affections for God, of course. And then you may use prayers and devotional writings of others. Uh, Bailey, oh, I think I have some of these little on here. 
um, uh, his first name slipped my mind. Lois, do you remember? You don't probably remember. John Bailey, written a, a little book of, of prayers we have by our bedside, beautifully written morning and evening prayers. Well, I can come up with my own prayers, but, but sometimes a person has a, a gift and it's helpful just to read what they've written. And many, many times we've been encouraged and helped by that. Lois, I know for two or three years, just continually tell me about her, her discovery of Oswald Chambers. And you maybe have two. And that sometimes a person who's walked with the Lord expressed themselves, that helps to stir your heart Godward. And then you may use also things, just simplicity or holy habits, or it could be like um, routines. I, I heard a beautiful story about a man who bought a rocker, a rocking chair, and the rocking chair was for his meeting with the Lord. So he got up in the morning, he aimed that rocking chair out the window toward the backyard, and he would go, and then when he would be in that rocking chair, the assembly knew that was his time with the Lord. And there's a big, long story I won't tell you. Maybe another day I'll tell you this beautiful, 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 beautiful story about that man and his fellowship with the Lord. And he just used that tool of that rocking chair. And it might be just a certain scene. It might be a, a holy. It might be the lighting of a candle. It might be a certain window. It might be a fountain. It might be a cabin or a kitchen table or a closet. It might be just a certain corner of the room and a certain arrangement of the lights. These things are just aids, you understand, in order to help you to quiet your heart and to seek the Lord and to concentrate on God. And then um, third, expect to find God in the dark of loss or pain or pressure or burdens. A lot of times we think, I want to seek God, but I don't want anything bad to happen to me. That's not how he works. That's not how he works. He, doesn't he just get our attention when we're hurting? Right? He's at work, his providence. He, and his providence is sweet and gracious providence. We need to understand the things that crush our hearts, the things that are just a continual burden, that even hard for us to talk about. Those are not, okay, now I can't seek the Lord anymore because I have this great burden. No, 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 no. Your God who so loves you and cherishes you, drawing you to himself, is going to use the fellowship of his sufferings to bring you into a special fellowship with him. And so now you are in a fraternity, a sorority, if you will, a fraternity of oneness with the Lord because you have suffered and are suffering. Please understand, during this time, you can expect to find God in the dark. You can expect a song in the night. Hebrews 10 and 34, we look at it like this. You had compassion on me in my chains, the writer of Hebrews says, joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So you, some, God and his providence or others have taken away from you and God has allowed to take away from you something like the spoiling of your goods, but you have a possession that can't be taken away in heaven. Number four, and this is the big one, obviously. This is a huge one. It's number four only because that's where I put it. Uh, the Bible how can you possibly see uh, an accurate image of the Lord without his revelation in the Bible? So this must be a part of it, and I know it's nothing new to you, but just, just know that, read the Bible, and meditate on the scriptures, and for a, for a picture of Jesus, and for your heart to be uh, thrilled with who, who Jesus is. I, I got a, uh, the other morning I was up, was reading, and, and I needed uh, some encouragement. I just needed a a little correction. It wasn't really encouragement. It was so much as correction. 
And uh, I found it in the craziest place. I'm just reading along, and I see how Moses responds to a certain thing. And I think, wow, you know, just the, in that response, it just jumped off the page to me. Like, this is what God would have of me. And, and isn't that wonderful how God uses his word to reveal, reveal himself and to help you. And if you want to cultivate desire for God, you will not be able to do that without looking full in his face in the portrait that is in the Bible of who God is. So use the Bible. God, the Bible is God's revelation of himself. It's God's revelation of his beauty. It's his, it's his like guidebook for your joy and for your desire. And, and, the, and, and the picture of Jesus in your Bible needs to capture your soul. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. The Bible says in Psalm 19, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. What is that? Testimony of the Lord. It's like the biography of God. The Bible is God's biography. It is the sure, everybody says they know who God is. Some of them don't even read their Bible, but they can tell you what Jesus is like or what the, no, look in the Bible and there you will find the portrait of who God is. Number five, you need others. You need community, you need family, you need leaders. Uh, this is what Paul was saying. We work together for your joy. Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is for brethren, this would be sisters too, to dwell together in unity. And, and, and uh, in, in this was a, a Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 133. And there are a couple of pictures in there. You're familiar with them. The oil uh, was, is like the Dew of Hermon. You have that lush, beautiful Mount Hermon in the north and Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. And he says the picture of this beautiful, lush, uh, beautiful, beautiful burden. By the way, 26th, Sunday night, the 26th, we're going to do the report from the Holy Land. And we'll show you the pictures, and we have some music and some neat things if you're able to be here. That last Sunday night in June is when we're going to do that. We visited Herman. We visited uh, the, the north. It was amazing, the, just the waterfalls, the beauty, the lush, the fragrant, the flowers. And then, so here he says, here's like the dew of Herman that descended upon the mountains of Zion. This is where Jerusalem is. There the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's like the precious ointment upon the head uh, that ran down upon the, the beard, even Aaron's beard. What is this that he's talking about that's so beautiful, this, this fragrant ointment that would have reminded David of the time of anointing and the time of the united kingdom and the anointing? What is this? What's he, what's he using it as a, as a picture of? It's a picture of... What's a picture of? Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I'm tiring you out here tonight. I'm sorry. But so in other words, these two pictures are, this is what it's like when God's people to get together. You can't be the lone ranger and learn to desire God. You've got to have help from other people. And you're helping other people and they're helping you. And it's in that you learn to desire God. And it's rough. You know, you bump into each other. You say things you shouldn't have said. And you've got to go make it right. And you got, you know, that's, that's living in community. It's, that's right. We all need it. And so this is a piece of it. Last night, um, went to the Tigers game. A neat game they beat. They beat the Twins. I mean, sorry, they beat the, who they beat? You know, Cleveland, yeah, the Tribe. And, they, and uh, the team from, yeah. And um, it was, all, it was a two-hitter. It was almost a no-hitter. Got in the seventh inning before they got a hit. It was neat, neat, fun thing to do. Beautiful evening. Uh, it's cool. You can go to the Tigers game. Five bucks to park, little hike. Usually you can get a ticket for five bucks. Pretty good deal. Uh, anyway, so last night we go to the Tigers game. It was a wonderful. Hope's first time to go to a Major League Baseball game. So she's a sweet little thing. She's sitting there. She's excited about everything. In front of us were these vile, profane people. 
Behind us were these vile, profane, filthy, talking people. I'm not, you know, maybe it sounds like I hate them. I don't. I just like pity them and it grieves me. And I think there was probably a time in America where you could take a 12-year-old girl to a ball game and nobody would describe some lewd, lewd, filthy act to a 12-year-old girl. And a dad, you call a guy out, and now you, she's got a wonderful memory of her dad, you know, getting in a fist fight with somebody at a baseball game. Probably not a good thing to do. And then about halfway through, here comes three guys. Two of them are holding up the other young man who cannot stay on his feet. And then he gets in front of us. Evidence of his drunkenness spews out all over everything, and the people in our section cheer for him. And I just think, what a sad world we live in, that there's just this, there's this nice family thing we're trying to do and in this beautiful evening, and it just crushes us to see the evidence of sin and depravity and our drift, our cultures, not drift away from God, our cultures sprint away from God. Now, why am I bringing this up? Here's why. God... Jesus planted his church in a pagan culture, in a drunken culture, in a filthy culture, in a profane culture, in an immoral culture. Jesus sent his disciples out in a filthy, profane, pagan, immoral culture, a lot like the one that we're living in. And he wanted them to create these little platoons of faith where God's people come together and they don't live that way and they don't act that way. They don't talk that way. They don't believe that way. Do you feel this? We need these clusters of obedience to God. We need these clusters of agreement. We need one another. That's why we've got to love each other. We've got to get along. We've got to encourage one another. We've got to stick together. We need that. And then finally, can you guess what number six is going to be? If I don't desire God, I need to desire God, and I want to cultivate desire for God, obviously the Bible's a part of that. Other people are going to help me. But what's the most obvious thing? Yeah, you're right. This, you ask it. And it's almost like every one of these is going to end here. But we are going to sing a song that will aid us in the seeking of the Lord. Yes, ask for it, pray. And that is um, more love to thee.